Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Sylvester McCoy and I play Doctor Who number seven on Doctor Who. Well, yeah, I could play Doctor Who number seven on something else. Anyway, you're listening to a rambling Doctor Who for the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels with a book. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the shocking task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I have never gotten to use that one, so it's nice to be able to use that one. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally shocking four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. There's also our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. It adds up to quite a few books by now. It certainly does, and you are back from your sabbatical, which we are very happy about. Mm-hmm. And finally, we welcome back a man whose experience in fandom puts my claim of being a so-called expert to utter shame, the star of Page and Screen, Jim Sankster. Hello, Jim. Destroy them, destroy them at once, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there is a YouTube video out there that has only the lines of dialogue from the cyber leader in the story, I should say. And the reason I know this is because I had to track down a particular line for when Dalton in the last episode said, oh, I can just imagine that the next story is also going to have some robot with soulless, empty eyes. (laughs) And I had no idea. (laughs) That's no way to talk about Nissa, though, is it? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oof. But you did say that, Dalton. I did. I did. Yes, and you were right. (laughs) 
So if you like what you're hearing, please check out our <laughs> Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in large silos on a space freighter guarded by Cybermen. Just to say thank you for helping us stay on the virtual air, you know what I should have said? I should have said you have so many of them, you store them in large silos on a space freighter that's wrapped in plastic. Well, I think you should start offering pirated PBS passport logins as well. Oh, God, no. Make it more like joining PBS. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. I would never support state-sponsored media. Oh, God. <laughs> Good Lord. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lemmy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, and Louise Dennis. <gasps> thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You did it. <laughs> and I'm not going to be able to do it again because of this. And starting with this episode, we'd like to welcome our latest patron joining us from Australia. Welcome, Bluey. Woo! Yes, so we're very happy. We're sorry for all the hooting. That's okay. I'm sure they're used to it by now. Hey, we like it. Yeah, didgeridoos and all that. Now, now Louis has stopped supporting us after those remarks. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. That's so racist. It's not racist. It's a, it's a line from Queer as Folk. It's not racist. It's culturally imperialist. <laughs> oh, that, now you're talking my language. Yes, there we go. <laughs> We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, unlike what we're doing now. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash ly7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's first season as The Doctor as we discuss Ian Martyr's novelization of Eric Sayward's script for Earthshock. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Earthshock, adapted by Ian Martyr from the script by Eric Sayward that aired from 3882 to 31682, published by Target Books in August 1983. As of this recording in April 2023, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. Obviously, not a lot happens in this one. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, it's considered one of the best Peter Davison stories and is, in fact, one of the actor's three favorites from his tenure. I know his last story as the Doctor is another. He loves Caves of Androzani, and with good reason. I can't think of the third one. Jim, do you happen to know what it is? It's obviously Force of Doomsday, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> somehow, yeah, somehow I think you may be lying oh, to me, Mr. Sangster. I honestly don't know. I, w I would guess it would be one of his later ones, because his final series was the one where he said, if I'd have known it was going to be this good, I, I wouldn't have quit. So maybe it was Resurrection or Frontios, one of those two. Oh, it might have been Resurrection of the Daleks, come to think of it. Funny, though, how two of Davison's three favorite stories end with somebody dying horribly. Mm. But yeah. One reason for the success of this story is Adric's death. Not the fact of his death, mind you, though some may have been gleeful enough about that, but the way it was pulled off. It was one of the two major surprises in the story that somehow managed to stay under the radar from the public until it happened. The public may have known that Matthew Waterhouse was leaving, but they didn't know when. 
especially since the published cast listings for the next story had Adric listed. And spoiler alert, he is in the next story, kind of. So make of that what you will. John Nathan Turner decided it was time Adric left, and he decided to have the first companion death since Sarah Kingdom way back in the Dalek master plan. When he told Matthew Waterhouse about it, Waterhouse wouldn't speak to him for two weeks. Mind you, John Nathan Turner probably had lots of people not wanting to talk to him for long stretches of time by that point. But even Waterhouse couldn't deny it was a moving send-off for his character, especially the way the final episode's credits were shot. They do it as a silent credits crawl over Adric's broken badge on a black Mm. black background. God damn, that's a lot of alliteration. An idea that John Nathan Turner stole from a 1964 episode of Coronation Street when a major character on that soap died. Ugh. I'm just picturing the credits for Twin Peaks. There's just the photo of Laura Palmer. <laughs> Kinda. That's Ugh. pretty much it. In fact, if David Lynch were a Doctor Who fan, I would half suspect he stole that idea from there, but no. It seems appropriate. He he does love melodrama, so. Yeah, so does John Nathan Turner, apparently. <clears throat> the other major surprise in the story is the appearance of the Cybermen. One I've been trying to keep from two of our panelists for weeks now, and I think I managed it. I'm fairly certain they didn't know. Such a surprise would have been nigh impossible to keep under wraps now, but it was still possible in 1982. John Nathan Turner asked Eric Sayward not to include a reference to the Cybermen in the title of the story, so no Revenge of the Cybermen or anything like that. And when the Radio Times offered to do a cover page to trumpet the return of the Cybermen, John Nathan Turner refused, knowing that the surprise would garner more publicity than the cover would. Which is surprising, really. You may notice that our edition of the novelization also does not give the game away, even though by then the Cybermen's return was public knowledge. By the way, that image on the cover of the Doctor pointing a weapon... That moment actually never happens in the novelized version. The Doctor does grab Ringway's blaster in the book, but he never aims it. He does aim it on screen, but very, very briefly. I'll actually say it's something I found surprising and off-putting. Just a little bit. Towards the first impressions. For, well, first of all, I thought the Doctor's taking his laser tag game very seriously. <laughs> then I was thinking, since when does he look so comfortable with weapons? Yeah. I'm almost certain that that would have been a publicity shot taken during rehearsals. Mm. So, yeah, they're always doing that sort of thing. But if they did that, then obviously they would not be showing Cybermen either. Presumably, Target decided to use that image to keep the secret, but it only seems to work anymore for people who have never seen or heard the story at 40 years on. But it worked for me. It did work. It did work. Peter Grimwade was the director for this one, and it would be his last story as director, since he would soon become one of those people who never wanted to speak to JNT again. He would, however, write the next story, as well as two additional scripts, one for each of the next two seasons, with mixed results. I confessed only liking one of those three, and I'll leave it to everyone to guess which one it is. (laughs) There's a couple of notable things in the story beyond what we've just said. For one thing, the score is done by Malcolm Clark, who I believe had not scored a Doctor Who story since The Sea Devils, because Barry Letts did not like his score for The Sea Devils. 
And this time, the music is more recognizable as music. And it's extremely fitting that the Cybermen should be accompanied by music made by striking girders with hammers, among other things. It's a very industrial soundtrack. It reminds me very much of a Depeche Mode album, in fact. <laughs> Grimwade didn't like it, but it's a standout nonetheless. Another thing that stands out from the story is the casting. It's the first of many appearances by David Banks as the cyber leader. Excellent. And June Bland, who plays Berger, would return for Battlefield during Sylvester McCoy's run. But John Neither Turner couldn't let a story like this pass without some good old-fashioned stunt casting. And for Captain Briggs, he cast actress Beryl Reed. And I'm going to let Jim explain why that's so unusual because I lack the British cultural background to explain it, even though I have seen the movie The Killing of Sister George? Well, you've already gone through John Nathan Turner's first season, and on TV he's had quite a lot of success with attracting familiar faces. And then in season 19 he achieves the most amazing casting coup. Uh, unfortunately it's for Fort of Doomsday by getting Stratford Johns to play a space frog. <laughs> it's one of the most f amazingly funny casting coups ever. Imagine Dennis France from Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue as a space frog. That actually sounds like great casting. <laughs> he, well, yeah, yeah. He was a huge star in Z Cars in the 60s and early 70s. And then he gets Neris Hughes for Kinder, and she'd been a big sitcom star in the early 70s, and she just had success with District Nurse. So he's got this character of Captain Briggs. She's a middle-aged woman. And she's uh, independent and strong and a bit of a bully. So his first choice is Pat Phoenix. Now, that will probably mean nothing to any of you guys, but she'd been one of the major stars of Coronation Street uh, on and off for 20 years as Elsie Tanner, the sort of backstreet tart with a heart. And she's really strong, really aggressive, not afraid to put up a fight, but she's very vulnerable as well, especially when it comes to choosing her men. I'm trying to imagine sort of US casting game again. So imagine Linda Gray from Dallas, except she can act. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that would have been incredible. And Pat Phoenix had this fiery mane of red hair, but she wasn't available. And instead we get Beryl Reed. Fans are really weird when it comes to things like this. I mean, they'll be quite snooty if someone's got a comedy pedigree, and yet they'll forget that John Pertwee had never played anything but comedy before Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Sylvester McCoy had predominantly been a, a comic fool before Doctor Who and kind of was the same afterwards. So, so um, there's, there's two programmes that I want to draw attention to immediately, which is Beryl Reed was the presenter of a children's puppet series called Mooncat. And a few fan critiques mention this. There's this sort of, I think it's turquoisey cat in a spacesuit, And it's for young children. Now, Elizabeth Sladen presented... A, a show for kids with puppets after she did Doctor Who. But again, no one slates her for that. Beryl Reed was a comedy performer. She'd been a recognisable voice on radio for 30-odd years. But she played the lead on the, in the stage play of The Killing of Sister George in the West End and on Broadway, for which she won a Tony. Uh, and later she recreated the part on film. She, she won an Olivier Award for Born in the Gardens, which was a play I saw years later starring Colin Baker and Sandra Dickinson. A few years before Earthshock, a couple of years before Earthshock, she'd starred in the uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the John the Carrey adaptation, as Connie. 
and it's a stunning, show-stopping performance. And she'd recreate the role a couple of uh, months after her shot went out in the sequel, Smiley's People. And I think it's just another example of fans lacking imagination when they hear anecdotes from the set of Beryl Reed claiming not to understand a word of it. And she's trying to lighten the mood and make people laugh in the rehearsals. But first of all, that's the sort of person she was. She was really funny. Secondly, this is directed by Peter Grimwade, who was great with a camera, but terrible with actors. So no wonder she thought it was appropriate to lighten the mood. And apparently he told her off in front of the entire cast. And everyone was like... So I'm going to play the game again of who would you cast if this was an American performer. And I've chosen Cloris Leachman, (laughs) who was really famous for comedy after the Mary Tyler Moore show. She had her own uh, sitcom, Phyllis. Younger listeners might know her as playing the, the Russian grandmother in Malcolm in the Middle in more recent years. But she won a BAFTA. She won an Oscar for The Last Picture Show, a Golden Globe, and uh, nine Emmy Awards. So, you know, she, I think that's kind of an equivalent of someone who is famous for comedy, but it's got the chops for drama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that help? Yeah, it does. <laughs> that somebody you would not think of as necessarily being right for the role being surprisingly good for the role. She is quite astonishing at times. And despite the fact that she claimed she didn't understand any of the stuff, I think that the casting of her is brilliant because this is a woman who, in the book, she's described as being 50-something. In reality, she's 62 at this point, which uh, in 1982 is past retirement age for a woman. We don't get any of the, the cliche of, oh, this is my last tour of duty. She's a career woman. And she's not going anywhere because nobody in the future can afford to retire. And the wig and the makeup might look ludicrous to us, but that's adding to the character to hide her true age and mask her fear that she's replaceable. So all of this is brilliant. Just casting her is amazing world building, I think. Mm-hmm. And that costume. <laughs> <laughs> the leather jacket. It's just like, oh my God. It's brilliant. Okay, well... Let's do a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jim, we always allow the guest to do this, and you did your best BBC voice last time, so let's have you do it again. A group of paleontologists have been savagely attacked while carrying out a study of fossilised dinosaur remains in an underground cave system on 25th century Earth. That's a really long sentence. And here's another one. A party of troopers and Professor Kyle, the only survivor of the attack, are investigating the deaths of her colleagues when they discover the Doctor and his companions at the site of the massacre. The time travellers are immediately suspected. In trying to establish their innocence and find out who or what was responsible for the killings, the Doctor is confronted by an old enemy. And now, of course, we know that it was... The Silurians, no, 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 no. But it certainly (laughs) feels that way at times, doesn't it? I want to start there, actually, with our two neophytes, I guess we can still call (laughs) Dalton and Allison. Dalton, your first impression, especially when you saw that cover and you read that back cover, who did you think was coming? What did you think? Like Allison said, that cover seems so weird, seeing the doctor holding that pistol. So that immediately was like, what the hell? I did suspect Cybermen or Daleks, but then once we are kind of in the caves and we're seeing the fossils, I did also think Silurians. And then once we actually get the black androids, 
it kind of threw me off the scent of Cybermen. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was like, well, these are Android robot things, but these aren't Cybermen. So I was like, well, who could it be? And then I thought maybe it's the master again. So yeah, I, I had lots of suspicions and uh, it was kind of surprising once it was revealed. And I do feel like the reveal of it being the Cybermen happened too early. Oh, really? Yeah. There was a scene where they describe, I think it's like in the silo, where we get a sentence at the end of a chapter saying that there was like a silver flash. And you kind of, you get the idea that it's a Cyberman. And it's like, that should have been the reveal. That should have been it. Instead of having a scene with the cyber leader talking to the deputy and doing all the things with the bomb, if that would have been left out, if we wouldn't have known what was going on with that, I think it would have been a more effective reveal instead of, you know, we get the scene in the caves and then it switches over to the perspective of the Cybermen Ian Martyr describes them perfectly. I immediately knew these were Cybermen. And so it lost all mystery at that point, which I wasn't disappointed in, but I felt like it could have pushed a little more. Interesting, especially since the reveal on TV is the cliffhanger for episode one. Mm -hmm. And it's brilliant. It's probably one of the best reveals ever, in my opinion. But I had a ruin for me, too ahead of time i don't remember which story it was but recently we've we've had a story where we had a character reveal in like the third episode and it really paid off it really felt like something that was like you were waiting for episodes one and two to figure out what this thing was and then episode three we find out about it and it just heightened that because then you're looking back the whole time and be like oh of course that makes sense why that was happening and that was happening let me think. Would that have been Keeper of Trocken when it was revealed it was the Master? Possibly. Yeah, because I think on screen he doesn't get revealed until episode four. But yeah, I I, I would agree. On, on pros, you can probably stretch that out a bit further. And when the reveal comes, it's a mention of cyber technology. It's not the description. It's a mention of cyber technology. And you think, oh, oh, it's them. Uh. But okay, Allison, your first impression. Well, part of the design of the podcast is that we're following the syllabus and doing the assigned readings. So if I were standing in front of a shelf, looking at the Doctor Who novels, picking out one to buy as a teenager, I would never have picked this one. Because like I said, I found the cover so unengaging, but also odd. And then looking at the back, I'm never trying to figure out who the surprise guest might be, but I wouldn't have found it particularly engaging. Mm. But Professor Witt doesn't give us the option to put it back on the shelf. I really so, don't. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm never trying to figure out who the surprise is. It was this old enemy, and I figure, oh, they'll let us know when it's time. Uh, I did early on think it was going to be the Silurians because we were underground and there were all these references to prehistory, and that seemed yeah, obvious. Although I had to look up Silurian because I think the way I mentally phrased it was, you know, the dominant lizard people who live under the army base. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the most accurate description. I think the challenge with the novelizations is the Cybermen, the Daleks, these are such visual reveals Mm. where you see the shape and it is challenging, I think, to have that same impact on the page. Mm -hmm. So I didn't guess it was the Cybermen. I I wasn't trying either. I certainly wouldn't have picked this one up at the bookshop and said, oh, 
It's just another one where the Cybermen are going to wipe out the dinosaurs and Adric bites the big one, whatever. They're all like that. <laughs> I didn't expect either one of those things. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Good. Mission accomplished. Fantastic. The trope of the Cybermen wiping out the dinosaurs and Adric exploding in a hail of glory. <laughs> Actually, the first surprise to me was when Adric first showed up, because I haven't read the last two or three stories there. Oh, are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> and it was immediately clear that he was going to leave by the end of the story, but uh, I, I did think they were going to take him back to East Base to resume his career as a juvenile delinquent. Although at one point, Scott is saying something admiring. It's like, Edric's thrown a rock at someone successfully. And I thought that that was going to be, you know, the, the joke is that they introduce him to a military recruiter. To oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> was too old to be a juvenile delinquent at this point. He uh, he decided to be all he could be. He, yes, <laughs> he's old enough for that. So I didn't expect this coming. Oh my! Can I read the paragraph real quick that gave it away for me? Yes, please. Which comes before the mention of the cyber technology. Mm -hmm. Just just so you know why I immediately was like, yeah, these are cybermen. <laughs> One of the two silver figures was considerably larger than the other, but both resembled humans in having heads, torsos, and limbs. The rigid, mask-like faces had eyeless sockets and immobile mouth-like apertures, but no noses. They had no ears, but a network of wires and pipes connecting a bulging section on each side of their heads to a similar bulge on the top. Yeah. That immediately says Cyberman to me. Yeah, <laughs> as well it should. It doesn't say Silurian for sure. <laughs> I'd like to revise my statement. I actually would have picked this one off the shelf because the pleasant surprise was, oh, it's Ian Martyr. Which I don't think we've read any by him in like three years. We really have In podcast time. Mm -hmm. I think it was it's been a while. summer of 2020, I think, because that was maybe the first one for which I did the audio book because I was on a road trip. Mm, that would have been Rebus Operation. It's, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. Jim, your first impression was pretty much the same as mine, I imagine. Well, again, I saw this on first broadcast. And by this point, I was uh, a subscriber to Doctor Who Monthly, as it was then. And in that issue, which, by the way, is the first issue to have an interview with an editor of Target Books, Christine Donica is interviewed a few pages before the preview. So um, it's quite relevant for this Target discussion. There's a preview of this and Time Flight. And the preview for this begins. Once they were the lords of the Earth, gigantic reptilian behemoths whose size and strength carved the first true empire this world has ever known. And it goes on in this vein for about four paragraphs. Finishing with, with an abruptness that defies agreed explanation, the age of the dinosaurs came to an end, leaving the Earth at the end of the Cretaceous period to those who would inherit it after them. The mammals. And yeah, you're thinking, who's the villain in this? It's got to be the Silurians. And it's a really clever twist. It's a really fantastic twist that it's not. Uh, this is the season where, of course, it's gone from Saturday nights to Monday and Tuesday, twice weekly. And something that you might need to know is that the Radio Times listing magazine would come out on a Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on where you are in the region. So John Nathan Turner had decided not to go with a promotion on the Radio Times, they were offered a cover and he said, no, I want the surprise to be a bit more organic. So episode one has to end with the reveal of the Cybermen at that point, because tomorrow, next week's edition is going to give away that the Cybermen are in it because there's going to be an illustration on the listings page. But even then, hmm. he makes sure that the characters are listed as leader and lieutenant. And we've got military characters in there, so they could be anyone. Right. 
Uh, so I'm watching this. I'm convinced it's going to be the Silurians. The next day, I ran up to one of my school friends, just ecstatic, going, the Cybermen are in it. And my school friend went, oh, I didn't see it. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's the last time you two spoke. Oh, you see, yeah, so he's dead now. Um, and actually, that's not funny, he is. Um, so <laughs> oh, so is Adric, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are we all a little dead? This yeah, I know I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was so happy. And bear in mind, I had never seen the Cybermen. Oh, that's right. I mean, I, I mean, I saw Genesis the Daleks, but I don't remember the Cybermen, so I'd, I'd certainly never seen the original ones, because apart from Revenge of the Cybermen, they haven't been on TV for a, a, a decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing this Cybermen, and these are the Cybermen. They talk like this, they move like this. And it's only years later when you get the videotapes and, and you hear the, the original Cybermen going, what the hell are they saying? <laughs> <laughs> when they're doing the old... What? Yeah. Whereas these, at least they've got perfect diction when they're speaking, even if they're a little bit ungrammatical at times. It is a word like any other, and so is destruction, which is what we are going to do to that planet. Ah, oh, well, I suppose we can't expect decent English from a machine. <laughs> yeah, we need to talk about that. It's one of many things that Martyr manages to fix. All right, so we need to talk about what we liked, because whenever we get an Ian Martyr book, it tends to be an occasion, because <laughs> say what you will about Ian Martyr, his books are always interesting. They may not always be good interesting, but they're always interesting. They're always very atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, they are. And definitely this one. So what were the things we liked? <laughs> Well, to just mirror what what Allison just said, the opening paragraph describing the cave and the cliffs and where we are with these tunnels, I'm immediately kind of put on Earth in, what is it, the 25th century at this dig. And you get the feeling of the grime and the grit. And in parts of it, it reminded me of the descent, Mm. just the eeriness of it. You know, we don't get much description of the androids initially so there are just these beings kind of stalking through these tunnels after these people and it's just it's so eerie and just i loved that and the first half of the book is not my favorite bit of it but the descriptions that we get of the caves are just really really good to me i'll say about ian murder's books that i usually don't retain that much of the plot later But he does these great moments of the character's wonder and intensity Mm -hmm. in the moment. I'm thinking of the Doctor, I think, Nyssa looking back at the Earth where they realize that that's the destination and it's going to be destroyed. Or Adric, so intense in his calculations at the last there. And those are the things that I remember, the atmospherics and the intensity and wonder of the individual character moments. Mm -hmm. I find he's very good at reproducing the tension between the Doctor and Adric that leads to that argument and then leads to what ends up happening, even though Martyr does make a lot of changes to the dialogue and changes to the pacing that I'm not quite sure I agree with completely. And this is something 
that once you watch the televised version, you'll see that what Martyr has done in a lot of cases is condense several scenes that are broken up by crosscuts to other scenes into one so that they go a lot faster. So that argument between the Doctor and Adric just flares into a huge argument relatively quickly, whereas on screen it's a little bit more of a slow build because there's a scene between them arguing in his room and then arguing in the console room. But yeah, that may just be personal preference in my case. Jim, how about you? Well, we talked about innuendo on my last guest appearance. <laughs> yes, we did. And I'm glad he didn't whip it out. So he fingered it thoughtfully. <laughs> because of the order in which you're reading this, which is in order of broadcast story, rather than the order in which they were published, you've already read Ian Martyr's last books, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So you've read The Rescue. And so the story goes, the editor of that book, Nigel Robinson, had to struggle to remove as many of the references to 69 that Ian Martha could shove in there. Oh my God, and only yeah. one of them survives. I think it starts with the rescue ship is 69 days away from Dido. So it's really odd that there's a really big innuendo in the first scene, one of the first scenes on TV, that disappears. And apparently they were in the rehearsals, the whole cast were really naughty. They're having a lovely time. And James Warwick is, is really part of this. So... There's a scene where Scott is talking to Professor Kyle saying, and he leaves a really big pause when he says, um, I realise going down again must be hard. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas in the book, it's just, I'm sorry to drag you down there after what you've been through, which is a lot more empathetic and kind, but where's the the joke, Ian? Where's the joke? (laughs) You've removed the joke. Yeah, and it's strange that he does make changes like that that aren't necessarily improvements. That as clunky as Eric Sayward's dialogue can be, and oh my god, it is so clunky at times. The trooper, for instance, talking about damaging her shoulder, it's like, wait, what? No one says that they've damaged their shoulder if they've hurt their (laughs) shoulder. The fuck is wrong with you? There's the potty mouth coming out already. (laughs) There we are. Yeah, as clunky as his dialogue could be, there are times when Ian Martyr actually makes it a little clunkier. And I'm not quite sure why. I think it's to put his own imprint on it, because as we all know, Ian Martyr puts his own imprint on just about every story that he does a novelization of. Such as the doctor fingering the fossil thoughtfully. There's a lot of fingering in this book. (laughs) Both thoughtful fingering and absent-minded fingering. And then, was it later, Adric is sucking his throbbing fingers? Well, yeah, that might be Martyr (laughs) getting in those references. And Scott fingers his moustache. Oh, that's right. Good trick if you can do it. More than once, in fact. He just can't leave the damn thing alone. Thoughtfully or absently? Well, it is a fabulous mustache. We have to give him credit for that. <laughs> well, I'm going to let other people talk because I'm still gathering my thoughts on this book because something we've always said about Ian Martyr, again, making his own imprint on a story, is this one. Apart from those few changes, he doesn't really change this one all that much, I find anyway. The rescue is vastly different than its televised version. And when we get to Ark in Space and Sontaran Experiment, they're vastly changed. Even Rebus Operation is kind of shocking when it changes. And not to mention uh, Reign of Terror, but this one, it feels almost script to page at points. I thought it was interesting what you were saying about the 
presence of the Cybermen being intentionally not on the cover, but this, once again, is a book from an era when they come out 9 to 18 months after the episode airs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So isn't everyone who's interested in this book already going to know? Yes. Are they, are they planning that many years in advance, I guess I'm saying, to surprise the audience? Oh, I doubt it. I very much doubt it. It's possibly just Marta thinking not everyone. Because, the, again, if you missed it like my school friend did, that's it. You don't tend to get repeats, even though this has been repeated quite a lot, funny enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, this, this came out about, um, it was a year and two months after broadcast. So at the end of the next season, that's when this was released. Yeah, I know I just said he doesn't make that many changes, but I do want to talk about the way he handles the Cybermen because the Cybermen have never been described like this before and they never will be again. They have some really unusual qualities in the story that makes them almost a little more like Santarans because they're described as having oily breath. They're described as hissing, they're described as ticking, they're described as just making a lot of noise. I didn't recall them being this talkative in general, even aside from all the sound effects you're describing. That's a change specifically with Eric Sayward. Eric Sayward has Cybermen that are particularly chatty and (laughs) flippant, positively flippant, and very emotional extremely emotional to the point that any time the doctor or anybody else says, don't you have any emotions? You think they do. They absolutely do. It's just, they have a very limited range. They speak emotionally of how they don't have any. Yeah, precisely. They get pissed off. They react angrily to things. They're very haughty. They're very prideful. They make terrible jokes. Yeah. But it's Martyr who brings in the oily breath and the sound imagery and the tactile imagery and all of that. And I was wondering how other people felt about the characterization of the Cybermen here. I like the physicality of the descriptions. Like you said, evoking more all the senses of the the smell and the sound and not just the, the visuals and the voice. Yeah, I remember there being a part where he describes like Tegan kind of wincing because of the smell coming off of them. And so, yeah, it just creates like a whole experience of them instead of just describing them in like a visual way. Yeah. Maybe that's why they're in shrink wrap. It's not necessarily to keep them fresh. (laughs) It's to keep that smell from exuding because it would be a dead giveaway. Mm -hmm. It's like, I smell Cybermen up in here. (laughs) I didn't remember the gold vulnerability at all. Mm. Well, it's relatively new. That was introduced in Revenge of the Cybermen, and it still doesn't make any goddamn sense. Okay, we might as well get into this. <laughs> well, I thought it was just me, but I just didn't no. recall it. No, it's it's from Revenge of the Cybermen, because if you recall, that whole story revolves around Voga, the planet of gold. And in fact, we get a flashback to it in this story. The only problem is Revenge of the Cybermen chronologically takes place after this story. So it doesn't make any sense for the Cybermen to know about that encounter with the Fourth Doctor. Depending on what chronology you go by, the setting of Revenge of the Cybermen is... I'm going to blank out on this. Jim, do you remember? I mean, this is kind of explained in the book. Oh, is it? Is it? Okay. Something I've only noticed today when I was speed reading it again, because obviously I read this for my blog in uh, 2020, 2021. These Cybermen are consistent throughout the 80s. It's this basic design in all the stories they appear in. 
and in one future story, they do have time travel. Ah, right. Yeah? So let's assume that they're from that time period. And I'm not going to give any more details on that future story, but there's a line in the book explaining his entire plan. And again, cyber plans are always a bit dodgy. They're always a bit, <laughs> always a bit weird. You're supposed to be logical, but you, you're really, really not. Anyway, uh, so they, they, they plant a bomb somehow on the planet, and then that doesn't work. So their original plan of using the freighter to then take over the Earth, they think, oh, we're going to use it as a bomb. And the whole point of it is to stop this galactic conference. And it's the sort of galactic conference that is discussed in Revenge of the Cybermen, mm-hmm. where the Cybermen were defeated by a galactic coming together, uh, a union of different alien races to defeat the Cybermen once and for all. And that's where we see in Revenge of the Cybermen, the last of the Cybermen. This is predating those conferences that bring them all together. And the cyber leader says, by striking now, we shall prevent much... Sorry, let me go. By striking now, we <laughs> shall prevent much greater conflict in the future. <laughs> and that sounds like it's just a strategic prediction, but we know the Cybermen have no emotion. Right. So this is the Cybermen saying, we know from the future that these events will lead to our defeat in the future. Ah, okay. So these are future Cybermen. And it's part of a number of stories we'll see in the 80s where having been defeated in the 60s and the 70s in certain ways, they go back and try and undo them. Mm. That's kind of how I'm reading it. But then I'm really leaning heavily on the headcanon, which I'm prone to do. Yeah, same here. I figured it was something like that because otherwise there's no explanation for it. It is one where if you're a fan, you're the only person who's going to care about it because the casual viewer doesn't really care. They don't care about something that was on the TV eight years ago or whatever. So... If as a fan you're the only ones who care about it, then as a fan it's your duty to try to find a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Which means we've got to come up with some headcanon for why the gold thing works. Because in this very story, the doctor says they don't need oxygen. They, in fact, thrive in a vacuum. And we've seen them do it. So why would a breathing apparatus even be something that would be a vulnerability point? Because it has something to do with gold not oxidizing, and I refuse to explain what I mean by that. <laughs> That's kind of what they said in Revenge of the Cybermen. You know what? I, I think that this is all part of the, the fact that the new Cybermen are so much more appealing to look at. The, I mean, as opposed to the old ones where they're kind of proto-Borg. You know, they've just got very basic costumes, very basic tunics, pipes and all that sort of stuff. These ones are designed, they look amazing. And it's almost like in the pursuit of trying to replace all of their human parts, they've also retained the desire for the aesthetic. I actually reviewed this story in 1995 for InVision magazine, and I dug the issue out today to, to see what my insane 24-year-old self thought. All the way through it, I'm talking about Nietzsche and celebrating the Cybermen's Nietzschean rise to power. They've discovered a taste for the aesthetic, something that the real humans have actually lost. They're all very functional and, and drab. But these Cybermen, we know that they are switched off when they're in the silos. Yeah. So presumably, they have a mechanism where they can go into the vacuum of space... And they switch off their breathing apparatus, and that's fine. But if the mechanism, which is replacing their lungs, because they are very organic, these ones, aren't they? Mm-hmm. We can see their, their jaw inside the glass jaw. You can see the chin. And in later episodes, we see body fluids when they're shot. And, you know, these are a lot more organic. So presumably they've got a mechanism that replicates what lungs do. Mm. And if they're switched off, or if they're in the vacuum of space, they can close the vent, and that's fine. But if the vents are open and they're working and stuff gets in... That's why it's a problem. Ah, okay. All right. 
that satisfies me. And so rarely things do these days. So thank you for that. So if you had Adric's badge and were scraping it against their vent out in space, it would not have worked. Well, it wouldn't have worked for you, would it? No, <laughs> probably not. Well, I assume I assume I'd be in a spacesuit if I were doing that. Gonna, give us a minute. I just need a breath. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Um, well, and to go off in a different direction from that scene, Adric, as written, it works best when he's described as being clever as opposed to just being obnoxious and sitting around making casually misogynistic remarks. So it was a nice part of the send-off to have him not only doing all these higher-level mathematical calculations, but also picking up on the hint mm-hmm. and figuring it out before we did was all all good characterization because the context that I wouldn't have had if I were reading this in 1983, which actually would have been extraordinary because I would have been like three years old and way ahead of reading level, <laughs> is Tony's constant narration about uh, what a loathsome individual Mr. Waterhouse was in his youth. <laughs> so, <laughs> <my God. laughs> I've only seen a couple of stories with Adric on screen. So there's what I read in the book, but then there's Tony's color commentary about (laughs) the on-set stories as we go through. So it actually was nice to send off the character with some positive characterizations. Mm -hmm. True. Although I think I have what I have written in my notes is Adric has decided he doesn't like his new stepfather. (laughs) It kind of feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah. I like it when Nissa and Tegan are urging the doctor to please consider his plea to leave. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor should be more sensitive to his desire to go home. Yeah. You, know, you should really think about dropping him off. I think it's possible. <laughs> right. we'll, we'll figure out a way. Let's get him the hell out of here, please. <laughs> he just sits around being emo. This story of all the stories with Adric, I had like an emotional connection to him. Mm. And I felt like for most of the story, there was just an extreme sadness to Adric mm-hmm. that having been a depressed teenager, he feels like a depressed teenager and he's yeah. trying to make the best of the situation that he's in, but he's not happy. I think it's the end of the second chapter when they're all leaving the TARDIS and you know he has that scene with Nyssa where he's talking to her and he, he then goes back to his calculations And he looks up to kind of give her thanks for saying what she said, and she's not there. And the chapter ends with, he was quite alone. And so that just, like, colored the whole story for me. Mm -hmm. I really did think they were going to send him off to have adventures with Romana. Yeah. But then that would mean he'd be able to come back. (laughs) But obviously, Matthew Waterhouse has come back for audios, believe it or not. That could have happened, but that wouldn't have been quite as uh, poignant. In fact, I know Jim has a theory about Adric that I want to get to. I have a theory about it here, because Martyr making Adric such a lonely figure here, and not so much you know, just the petulant child he is on screen, because, God, he's such a petulant child on screen. Making him that lonely, depressive teenager in the book means that because of Adric's behavior, he doesn't go out of the TARDIS with them to look at the bones of the dinosaurs. So he's not aware that there's been this extinction event in Earth's past. Mm -hmm. 
So he's not aware that some major object hit Earth and Earth was fine, which is why he stays behind on the freighter, because he still thinks he has to save Earth. Mm. And it's not his planet, so why should he know that history? Yeah, Exactly. So his own loneliness and outsider status causes him his own destruction. And that's kind of the definition of a, a tragic character right there. That, that literal fatal flaw, that in his case, it's not hubris, it's his outsider status. And that got me, especially with that last scene where the poor kid is hugging himself as he goes down because he's got no one else to hug him. Yeah, it's... Oof. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's funny because even though we know he had a brother... The suggestion is that he was an elite and his brother was a norm in full circle. So he would have been raised as if an only child. And he has those kind of only child attributes of not accepting the concept of defeat, even when it's way obvious to everybody else that this, no, this is the point you leave and you give up. He's like, no, no, I can solve this. I can solve this. Yeah. That's really sad, though. That's a really depressing thought. That's that's. I mean, I've gone a bit more sort of existential on, on my theory, but... Uh, <laughs> Because it's, oh, that's, but that's just depressing. That's miserable. Poor Adric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You bullies. You horrible bullies being mean to Adric. Yeah. <laughs> I told you guys this earlier, but after reading this, I text Tony and was like, this is the first Target book that has made me cry. And yeah, it, it is such a like touching end for him. Yeah. I'm going to cry now. It totally like takes any of that bad feeling that we had for him before. And yeah, it makes you feel bad about it. Because yeah. he feels like he is a misunderstood character. Yeah. And this really brings you onto his side. Yeah. Yeah. It and does. makes you understand him a little more. Yeah. And I think we've said before that the hatred that fandom seems to have towards Adric is not necessarily just because of Matthew Waterhouse, even though his antics have caused a lot of it. It's also that they see themselves in Adric. Mm-hmm. And there's that psychological idea of the shadow, that bit of your own persona that you see in others that you dislike because it reminds you of yourself. Thinking of how obnoxious and arrogant you were at that age. and Oh, God, yeah. What an ass that you would have made of yourself if you managed to get on your favorite TV show. and Yes. <laughs> how it would be the dream and how you would have behaved in a way you would have been embarrassed of later. Yes. And then to find out that the two lead actors who are playing the Doctor and Romana are having their own personal problems, haven't got time for you, and are just treating you like hell. Yeah. And then coming into a situation where the whole cast changes in front of you and everyone just has a little bit more social skills where they can tease each other and it not be traumatic and you're just not getting the rhythm, you're not getting the joke. It's really difficult. I I, I was 11 years old when I watched this and... I used to sit there in front of the TV and I remember biting my lip and thinking, I want to bawl my eyes out right now on the last episode. Um, I was really, really fighting it back. I've always been very emotional when I watch movies and stuff. I still am. But yeah, I remember getting really choked. And just then the silence of the, the end title. I was praying for the end title music so I could have a sniff and no one would know. And then it's, <laughs> the silence is just like, oh man, really? Yeah. But, just going to gulp it down and hope no one notices. And, and then say in a rather shrill voice, what's on the other 
aside this time. <laughs> yeah. And it affected me the same way, even though I had both reveals spoiled for me before ever seeing the story. Because I had a friend, uh, well, I met a friend the summer of 83, I think it was, because we hadn't gotten Earthshock yet. And he told me, because he had a subscription to Doctor Who Monthly, and he told me about the two reveals. And at the time, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, I can't wait to see this. But it still was affecting even knowing. The episode one cliffhanger is still a brilliant moment. The end of episode four is still brilliant and moving. And it's one of those few times where Matthew Waterhouse is doing some actual acting and is just tearing your heart out with it. He doesn't hug himself on screen, but what he does do on screen is he's clutching that rope belt that belonged to his brother. And it's like, oh God, this is just gutting. I'm sorry, I think you told us the context and I failed to retain it. He wanted to quit or he was let go? I think it might have been a little column A, a little column B, because I'm sure that even Matthew Waterhouse must have known that it just wasn't working out, and he wasn't terribly happy with it either, and he wasn't getting on with the others. And I know that John Nathan Turner had originally envisioned the character as something much different, which explains Ian Martyr's line about taking him back to Pterodon and letting him do a life of, you know, juvenile delinquency. And it's like, no, that's the original character brief. That's not what this Adric would do. Mm-mm. So it wasn't working. So it's just as well he left when he did. Whew. Jim, I think I want to hear that existential theory of yours. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cheer you up by going, this was always meant to happen. Born to die, the Adric story. Over on the Doctor Who Literature podcast, I've just unveiled my grand theory of everything to do with Full Circle. And the, the summary of that is, it's a cannibal horror um, snuff movie. But you'll remember that, so I'm not going to go into that, but you'll remember the Full Circle, the book, begins with a spaceship crash landing on a planet populated by lizard people. So we'll park that for a moment. The Doctor sends the Alzerians off in a ship that they can't fly. And there's a suggestion from Romana that it's better for Alzerius to be rid of them, to allow the natural order to return. And we know that the Doctor can see timelines and see what's meant to be. That's a thing that's happened in the new series. It happened in, the, in that series as well. So it's possible that he knows that the Starliner is destined to crash somewhere else because they don't know how to land it. He can help them take off, but they don't know how to pilot it. And he might have this sense of inevitability of, I don't know why, but they're all going to die in a crash. So let's just make that happen. Then this planet can go back to sleep and leave them alone. And then he finds out that Adric has stowed aboard the ship. And he's looking at this boy thinking, you should have died in a spaceship crash. And he's just waiting for time to catch up with him. So this is a slight spoiler for the next story. It's the very first scene. It's always been criticised that the Doctor effectively says to Nessa and Tegan, Adric wouldn't want us to mourn, let's move on. And it's a bit sudden. We have one scene of mourning and then they move on. But I think that if the Doctor knew what was going to happen to Adric and then sees it happen, the inevitability of it would be crushing because he's got to come to terms with Adric's death. It's not the shock that he died, 
But it's the acceptance that he was always going to die this way and the Doctor couldn't change that. And this is not Tom Baker, this is Peter Davison's Doctor, who is flawed and fallible. He lost his sonic screwdriver two stories ago and that was supposed to be a big thing. And now one of his friends has gone and he couldn't save him and he cannot go back to fix it because it's a fixed point in time. So this obviously makes us care about Adric a lot more, but it actually informs us about the Doctor as well, if we think about it. Mm -hmm. This is something that he's been living with in Adric's presence all this time, and it's the closing of a chapter that he he couldn't stop. Oh my goodness. Anyone know any jokes? (laughs) (laughs) It's just quite depressing. I mean, if they'd have said in the first episode... Uh, I think Doctor Who magazine did this once where they had a, a front cover of what if we knew spoilers and what is the nature of spoilers. We've got a whole new series about to happen. Um, and, and so I think Russell T. Davis said, as we're making new episodes, that means there are going to be new spoilers for you. So Doctor Who magazine did this story of what were the big spoilers that we know now. And one of them is a picture of Adric saying, this boy has five hours to die or something along those lines. It's like he was always fated. And that explains one of the most gutting changes that Ian Martyr makes. Because on screen, the witnessing of Adric's death is not silent. In the book, no one says anything. And the very last thing that the doctor does is smile sadly and turn to the console. And given your theory, it sounds like there's nothing I could have done to stop this. He's still sad about it, but he realizes his hands are tied. There's nothing he can do. Mm-hmm. So, oh. Jim, am I understanding this correctly, that you're saying that all of the more evolved Alzarians, the colonist class, they were all fated to die, and indeed they should? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. The ending of Full Circle is not the happy ending that you might think. Honestly, yeah. it's only based on the fact that when the James Breeze character said, we know how to repair everything. We know how to fix everything. We don't know how to fly the ship. And the doctor says, but it's been ready for years. you just got to press that green button. But he doesn't say, oh, and then this is how you use the gear stick. This is how you change gears. This is how you pilot it. They just say, oh, I'm sure we can program the computer to steer us there. Just take us back to Pterodon. Take the ship back to a planet where they haven't been for 4,000 years regardless of what, what civilization is waiting for them, the likelihood is if an old 4,000-year-old ship goes to Pterodon, they're going to shoot it down. Those people are dead. Yeah. Those people are doomed. In the parlance of modern youth, the doctor yeets them into space. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Romana who says, if you don't help them off this planet, it could do untold damage to the planet. It's Romana who's kind of saying there's a bigger picture here that we don't really want to say in front of them. Mm-hmm. We've just got to get this planet off. And in the book of Full Circle, there's a suggestion that things have gone back to normal. The marsh people go back to the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that I was working through. When I started thinking about it for the the other podcast, and the more I thought about it, the more I I thought, oh, this is really grim. But it's really exciting because I've just suddenly got a revelation of something good happening in time flight. (laughs) Which, spoiler alert... There's not a lot. No. So are we back to the scenario where about once a decade in broadcast years, the doctor facilitates a genocide? <laughs> well, possibly. I mean, I'm saying that in retrospect, because you read that like months ago. So, mm-hmm. 
you know. And also because he never went, well, in the big finish plays he does, but on TV he doesn't go back to check. So mm. pretty much, apart from Peladon, everyone's dead, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> in every single story, every single planet we've ever been to, he saves the day, moves on, and then something else happens. Mm-hmm. I've got this fantasy of the Crotons where, you know, they, they're freed of the Crotons and then the Gons are going, yay, and then the Santans move in or, <laughs> or someone equally rubbish. It's just like, oh, we're the perpetually invaded. <laughs> oh, my. We do need to talk about a few other things. One of them being the Fifth Doctor's characterization, because it's one of those things that is very odd. It's one of Martyr's changes that I'm not sure I'm on board with. Because for me, there are times when the Fifth Doctor feels more like the Fourth in this version. He's a lot more wisecracking, and he's a lot more kind of in the Cyber Leader's face. And I'm not sure if it's just me getting that, but yeah, the Fifth Doctor doesn't feel like the Fifth Doctor at times in this book. But then I know that for Dalton and Allison, they're still getting to know the Fifth Doctor, so... I'd be interested to hear what your impressions of him are in this book. And I'd also like Jim's opinion on whether or not I'm the only one seeing it. (laughs) I see what you're saying about him feeling like the fourth doctor at points, because he is a little more reserved in the other stories that we've read for the fifth doctor. And then in this one, he's just like cracking off at people left and right. He just doesn't seem as quietly calm as the fifth doctor has been from what I've read of him. Mm-hmm. Even when he panics, he seems different than the yeah. doctor panicking. Yeah. I, I thought it was pretty funny when Adric goes off on him for being immature ever since your last regeneration. <laughs> Role reversal. But I thought the implication was that this doctor smarted much more at that than the third or fourth would have. Mm-hmm. It actually, so New Stepfather is also more sensitive than the last one. Yes. I, I feel like we would have had the third Doctor, I think we would have had it maybe a scene where he felt that privately and didn't show it. Mm-hmm. And the fourth, I'm not sure we would have seen him feel it at all. Yeah. And we felt here that sort of, not just sort of smarting, but a sense of uncertainty that felt different and distinct. Yeah, because in the story, the fifth Doctor is very obviously hurt by Adric saying things like that. In fact, that remark about him being decidedly immature is much more snarky on screen to the point that it actually shocks the three of the rest of them. And (laughs) Martyr doesn't give us the paraphrase of the famous Captain Oates line, I'm just going outside and maybe sometime (laughs) the doctor says that at that point, and you're like, oh God, (laughs) he really is hurt by this, isn't he? But it comes off very differently here. So I'm not sure I'm completely on board with it. So I've got a sort of cultural milieu question. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking of more, like I said, on this was broadcast, I was not really aware of like sort of the conversations adults were having on the editorial page. It's about, you know, modern gender. Is the fifth doctor someone who was subjected to the disdainful critique of the new man being sensitive with a capital S and too wimpy and too in touch with his feelings. Oh. It seems like exactly the sort of figure who is ridiculed in pop culture in the 80s. But I think I'm probably thinking more of the mid to late 80s than the early 80s. But he, he does seem very sensitive new man. And he even has a prettier face than we've seen 
the previous doctors. I don't remember that being a point of criticism for Davison, at least in American fandom. Because he seems more visibly in touch with his feelings, if you will. Yeah, I know that one of the criticisms was that he wasn't quite Tom Bakerish enough, and obviously that was the point that Peter Davison was a huge departure from the way anyone had played the Doctor before, except maybe John Pertwee, because it is a very human portrayal of the Doctor. But I don't remember anyone criticizing him for being too sensitive. Now, being fallible, yes, but that also is kind of a new way of doing it that has fresh and interesting takes on it. But Jim, do you remember anything in British fandom? Are along those lines? In the tabloids, there's the instinctive thing of calling him the wet vet. Because he'd he'd been a vet on his previous show. And I think in the wake of Tom Baker, anyone would seem to be bland. I mean, it's funny, when, when you're reading these books, and each of the books either completely avoids trying to describe who the characters are, or they just go for something very superficial. So even with, with this one... Um, we don't really get to think about him being a cricketer. We're told he looks like he's off to a party at like a regatta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you get you get a sense of the... I mean, a regatta sounds quite old-fashioned. A summer party, he seems quite decadent and flippant. But it's, it's a nice bit of character drawing that we don't get in a lot of the books. But the thing that I'd say about this character, which I don't think I realised until years after he'd left the screen, is he's really bitchy. <laughs> yes. He's really, really bitchy. So... Even though I don't think that's necessarily Eric Saywood's style, I think it might be coming through somehow because he never misses a chance to take the piss out of his companions. I think Nyssa kind of escapes that. Yeah. But especially Tegan, he's arguing with her all the time and he kind of relishes it. And in the book, when he's talking about Adric, he calls him a young idiot. Yeah. And he's exasperated. It's that suggestion of he's an old man who looks like a young man. Mm-hmm. So he's treated like it. Even his own younger self, the first Doctor calls him young man later yes. on. Yeah. And it, it's frustrating for him because he's, he's seen as non-threatening. He's seen as unimpressive. And yet, you've got a character like Scott who comes in and he's a gruff, SAS-type army guy. And when he thinks that the Doctor and his companions have been responsible for these grisly murders, he's right in his face. And as soon as he's presented with the truth, he defers to the Doctor. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, you're telling the truth. You know more about this situation than I do. And I think often... With this Doctor, you learn about the other characters by how they treat him. And so Scott, once he finds out the Doctor is trustworthy and helpful and really resourceful and knows more than anyone else, he immediately steps back and goes, what do we do? And he allows the Doctor to step forward, shine and lead. And something I give Ian Martyr credit for is he shows that shift happening. Because there's a moment in the book that doesn't happen on screen where Scott realizes how old the Doctor is and goes kind of meek in front of him. That doesn't happen on screen, but you can definitely see that shifting over going on. So yeah, that definitely characterizes the Fifth Doctor very well. I thought it was interesting that the leader knew who he was right away and says, you know, it does nothing but interfere and then talks about, I think it's the first, second, and fourth Doctors. He sees that this is one continuous entity. Yes, in different forms, and I thought that was interesting. And he calls the Doctor it at first. I love yes. that. It does nothing but interfere. Yeah. And 
he recognizes him and says, Even under the threat of death, he has the arrogance of a time lord. And it's like, arrogant is not the word you'd use to describe the Fifth Doctor, and yet the Cybermen would, because obviously it's emotion, therefore suspect. Well, again, these Cybermen are a little bit more organic, so they really are a lot more emotional. Oh, God, yes. Well, in the book, there's a, a line with uh, Ringway where the Doctor says, Oh, you're a bit like a Cyberman. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of because... He's a human, but he's not very emotional. He hasn't got that emotional range. Whereas these Cybermen, whether it's you know realistic or not, they are programmed to affect emotion because they know that it freaks people out. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like the Uncanny Valley thing. So if, if the Cyberman is snip people or if he says, we will get revenge or what, sorry, sorry. We will get revenge. <laughs> it's not about this being a natural Cyberman instinct. It's about the programming and the logic going, we don't need this, but it freaks the hell out of you. And that's why we're doing it. Yeah. Well, to answer your question, I, I, I like the fact that with there's not actually a lot to go on. With the Doctor, he's going through the, you know, the scenes, and you don't really get a sense of a character so much as what a plot device. He's there to be accused of a murder, then fix a bomb, then take everyone to the next set. Mm-hmm. and then tell everyone they're Cybermen, and then lose. Yeah. So you don't really get a sense of the booming voice of Tom Baker. I mean, when Marta is describing the other three Doctors that we have in the flashbacks, in seconds you get a much greater sense of who they were. <laughs> because on first viewing, the fifth Doctor might seem quite bland, and, and there's not really a lot to, to hook yourself on. But that's because he's only watching this one story, and it's his first view, and he's thinking, well, Tom Baker's not like this. <laughs> But if he'd watched a lot of the stories, I think by this point he'd go, oh, he is quite bitchy. He's yeah. quite pissy <laughs> with his companions. And, and maybe if he'd seen more, he would have hooked onto it a bit better. I don't know. Completely different subject, but I have a confession to make about Ringway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's quite embarrassing. And it's not the confession that you may be thinking that I'm about to make. His first line to Briggs when she comes onto the bridge is welcome back ma'am but the way it's pronounced in british english pronunciation is mom and then she says don't call me mom on the bridge mm. and for the years mm. for years <laughs> i thought that they were mother and son that's exactly what i would have thought if i'd heard it uh-huh mm-hmm. and if you watch the story not the book, but if you watch the televised story with that misunderstanding in mind, there is this whole different dynamic that opens up. That he mutinies against his mother? Yes, and that yeah. she sees him kill dead and actually wants to kill him because she's composing a particularly nasty epitaph for him. And it's like, damn, woman. But yeah, so that's my confession. That was a nice little misdirection that, that switch which one of them appeared at first would be the villain mm-hmm. with her avarice for the bonus. Though I noticed that in the book, when she comes back on the ship, Berger actually says, well, mom's back. And it's like, what? Was I right? All this time. <laughs> I would have thought it was sarcastic, though. Like, oh, mommy's back. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But The micromanager's back. Yeah, it didn't help me at all. So I, I don't know if that's a British thing, but you know, if if someone walked into the room and somebody else said "Mum's home," they, they mean someone has walked in who wants you to know that a grown-up is in the room and fun time's over. Oh, like if the boss comes in and you say to your colleague "Mum's home" or, or "Dad's home," it just means put away your comic and, and look like you were working. 
because uh, fun time's over. Yeah. Which makes sense, because in the book, Berger is actually reading a book at her station. Yeah. <laughs> so. But it, it, it is funny how often... I've had this in the new series where people... I saw a video where someone was explaining the history of Unit, and they said that um, Osgood is Kate Stewart's daughter. Ooh. Just because she calls her mum. Oh. You say ma'am. Yeah. I mean, in the UK, we've also got a term of deferment called, where you say madam. Mm-hmm. But I think a madam in the US is something different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I called an American woman madam, I'd probably get a slap, wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. Or it would seem over-the-top sarcastic. Yes. Like, ooh, your royal highness. Just, you know, yeah. Look, madam. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The store is closing. You need to move along. <laughs> we tend to use the word madam for little brats. Ah. The children were acting up. Oh, here, here comes little madam. She's a proper madam, that one, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in, like in my final school before university, they had a thing where a lot of the kids grew up calling the, the teachers miss, even if they were married. Yes. And it felt ugly calling them misses. So they had the convention that you call them madam. And it felt really alien to speak to a female teacher going, madam. But that was the convention they, that brought into the school. Oh. We didn't call them mom. Right, exactly. I forgot my homework, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> It it does evoke a particular image, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm curious if the line is in the episode of Tegan saying, I'm just a mouth on legs. Really. Yes, it is. <laughs> that was very entertaining. Back when Jim first met me, that was the signature line in my email. <laughs> it's my yeah, favorite yeah. Tegan line. Well, what else do we want to say about this book, good, bad, or ugly? I like the description of the sound the TARDIS makes as uh, trumpeting elephants and tearing metal and then... <laughs> <laughs> TARDIS is later referred to as the Doctor's Museum piece. <laughs> but I thought referring to Snyder as dumpy was kind of a low blow. <laughs> yes. Considering this is an actual actor you're talking about, yes. it just seemed kind of uncharitable and unnecessary. Well, and Kyle is plumpish. <laughs> yes. Yes. With an ample bosom, and then she dies. Oh, God, that's for true. Oh, by the way, the cyber leader recognizes the TARDIS as a TARDIS, not as the Doctor's TARDIS, which is really odd because on screen it's simply, I know that object. I thought that these Cybermen were generally surprisingly educated about Time Lords and the Doctor. Mm -hmm. And if they're future Cybermen, as uh, Jim posits, and I, I believe that's absolutely right, they would. The time period that I'm referring to in a future story, they have been in in that TARDIS so yeah they know it mm-hmm. yep but I'm not I'm not saying which story or where it is <laughs> no no but I know exactly what you mean although actually the next two maybe three times we see them they're standing outside the TARDIS so they have this is the last time where they, they don't go anywhere well this is sorry this is the first time they go anywhere near it and from this point on they're going to be kind of recognizing it every single time they see it but previous to this they've never even seen it Oh, that's right. They haven't. So that would only make sense. In, t- in Tenth Planet, they walk past it, but they don't know what it is. Right. And in the moon base, it's, it's in the next crater along. And then in the other stories, it's nowhere near. In Revenge of the Cybermen, it's not even on the ship because they don't get there by TARDIS. That's right. On screen, this is the first time we've seen it, which suggests, again, there's a chronology where at some point in, in the, the Doctor's future and their past, they've seen this police box and know it is. Oh, wow. I really think that goes well beyond headcanon then. Because within the context of the series, if we're not looking at any external media, that's the only explanation that makes sense. Goodness, learn something every day.
I was shocked by how violent the story is. Oh, yeah. The descriptions at the beginning of the androids basically liquefying people is is pretty fucking grotesque for Doctor Who. Yeah. There's a bit when the Cybermen are coming into the TARDIS where he describes someone's skull as being crushed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like an egg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is a lot. Well, that's partially Ian Martyr, because he always makes things grosser than they actually are on screen. But in this case, it's not by much, because the destruction of the troopers... Destruction, which is what we are going to do to that planet. Because the destruction of the troopers by the androids is probably, up to that date, the most gruesome effect we ever see on screen. And it's not even an effect we see on screen, we see the aftermath. The funny thing is, it on original broadcast, it looks quite gross. It's you know the the bodies of of Snyder and whatever. It's a bubbling pool of stuff. But it was only when it was released on DVD and later on Blu-ray that we've been able to see the detail. And I remember specifically one of my friends messaging us because we just all got the DVD of Earthshot, and he said, "There's a hand." And we went, "What?" Yes. He said. The comm device in the pool of gunk, it's still in her hand. Yes. So we all rush to the bit and watch and go, oh, Jesus, that's disgusting. That's really... Because you couldn't see it on original broadcast. As Tony says, this is the story where Eric Say would start getting a taste for the grizzly and he won't let go of it until the very, very end. But when we started looking at it and then freeze-framing it and looking at that scene where you see the, the comms device and you see the badge... And we started seeing all sorts in the mess. We, we saw an eye, we saw some teeth, an ear. I think there's only a hand. I have always seen the hand, as a matter of fact, but I think that's because the resolution of American TVs. That may be the reason, but I remember noticing it. But in, in this book, as, as well as the Cybermen, like everything is, is wet and steaming and viscous and, and gruey, which... Right from his first book, that's what Ian Martyr brought to the series. He brought horror. He brought a sort of a really wet experience of, of what the Doctor's universe is. Very sensory, very in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it even extends to when the Cybermen are being killed, and it says evil yellow and black bubbles poured out of the ventilator. <laughs> even the Cybermen are just ooey-gooey flesh sacks underneath it all. <laughs> and when when he says that they are trampling heedlessly on their own fallen, I'm not sure I would have noticed that on screen. I haven't seen the scene, but <laughs> I don't think I would have fully grasped that part of their unfeeling lack of empathy even for their own fallen. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have picked up on it. Oh yeah. I've never been able to find an interview where anyone asked any of the target authors who he influences, but my guess is that at the very least Marta read Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. Both visceral and viscous. (laughs) Because nobody else prior to Ian Marta had these descriptions. He brought the horror that no one else... They might hint at it, but he brought the wet, gruey body horror. Was he... I don't remember when he published his first adaptation, but was editorially... Was he allowed to maybe be a little more explicit than previous writers have been? I think... I mean, the the words he's using are... The descriptions are a lot more graphic, but it, it, they're still sort of age-appropriate in a way. So it's got Ark in Space and then Santara Experiment, and in both of those, the, the creatures become very dripping in, in body fluids. In my time period, you've already seen this, in the Invasion, the Cybermen, again, are oily and dirty. But this is something that will 
really drive through a lot of Doctor Who fiction in the future. So, like Russell T. Davis's one Doctor Who novel in the mm-hmm. New Adventures has a creature effect that is very like an Ian Martin monster. Oh, God, is it ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whenever anyone talks about RTD's uh, era of Doctor Who as being light and fluffy compared to the past, I think, you haven't read that book, have you? <laughs> because that book is just body horror through and through. Not quite as bad as others, but it gets there. Okay, any other comments we want to make about the book? The Cybermen kind of being described as insects Ooh. in these cocoons in a way, and, and specifically the second set of Cybermen that come to life that are, seem to be not fully formed in a way, I guess, mm-hmm. is the best I can kind of describe it. It's just a, another kind of eerie way of taking us inside this kind of hive mind of them, you know, making them into literal insects in pods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they've never really been a hive mind. They're not Borg, Mm -mm. even though Neil Gaiman kind of (laughs) blew that one a little bit when he did his Cybermen story for Matt Smith. He almost made it that. But yeah, Ian Martyr is definitely seeing them as closer to Weirin than they are to Daleks. It's an interesting direction to go in, though, with a you know machine-based enemy to to be so physical with the description of it. You know, you were saying they're oily and they're dirty, and then you were saying Dalton these sort of insect-like images of them. Mm-hmm. And they burst out of the chrysalids. You described yes. the style of the chrysalids and the infant movement. And yeah, it's it's a, I think it's a beautiful addition to the Cybermen. Yeah. Oh, something like they're not dead, they're not alive, they're waiting to be born was. Mm-hmm. Chilling. If Ian Martyr hadn't read Lovecraft, I'm almost certain he would have read John Wyndham, because it definitely has echoes of Day of the Triffids and other such books. It's got that feel to it. When we were talking the other day, and you you mentioned about um, Tegan using the word sport. Oh and yeah. I was just wondering because I was when you said that, I thought I wonder if this is a lack of knowledge of Australian language or whatever, or or, what was your impression, the fact that he's used the word sport? Yeah, it's absolutely that, because we know even less about Australian slang than we do about British slang, even after all these years. So having Tegan call Nissa sport was a little odd. What are you hearing? What are you hearing when she says sport? It's the sort of thing that I would think would be said to a kid, especially a male kid. So having that directed to Nyssa, who's neither a kid nor male, especially given the dynamic between Tika and Nyssa, is, is kind of strange to me. I thought you might have thought that it was a bit too English, because... Um, no, no. You know, the kind of uh, the tough, kind of, um, what house, sport? That kind of thing. But no, it's... Um, it, he mentions that uh, Tegan has a nasal Australian voice quite early on, and then he doesn't really allude to it again. But it, this is how he kind of shows, not tells. Because later on, she, she used the phrase, oh, beaut, sounds great fun, sarcastically. And the word beaut is, is something that you would use if you were trying to say, this is an Australian. I don't know, and it, like uh, if you were writing a Texan, but you didn't want to say they were Texan, and you threw in the word yee-haw at the end of a sentence. I don't know, I don't know. I'm being, I'm being <laughs> but this, so sport in the UK, if, if you had a character saying the word sport and you'd already said they're Australian, that was a way to support the idea. And it comes from like an old joke that I remember from around about this time about how Australians answer their own questions. So 
What's your favourite boy's name, Bruce? What's your favourite girl's name, Sheila? What's your favourite pastime sport? So it's that kind of... Uh, that's why she's saying sport. It's just, you'd say mate, friend, pal, buddy. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Because his characterization of Tegan otherwise is really good. I love Tegan in this book. She's pretty good in this episode too, but there's a very different interpretation of her in this book. And also one of the things that stands out to me specifically about Tegan is when she has her freak out and almost sends the TARDIS flying off into time and space. And the doctor, instead of just holding her tightly and shouting in her face as he does on screen, he hugs her in close and whispers in her ear. And it's just this amazingly intimate moment, but it's like, oh, I wish they had filmed that, though. I can understand. They don't want hanky-panky on screen. (laughs) So that's probably it. I was just going to touch on some of the casting. So I know this isn't part of the book, but just part of the casting. So um, Scott is played by an actor called James Warwick. Yes. Who's this tall, handsome, traditional hero. Um, And they cast him in this because he'd appeared in The Nightmare Man the previous year, which is a four-part drama, directed by Douglas Camfield, written by Robert Holmes. It's the closest thing you're going to get to Doctor Who for adults. Torchwood, sit down. It's not you. And it's four half-hour episodes, and it's, if you can get hold of it, The Nightmare Man. It's brilliant. He'd later go on to play the voice of Qui-Gon Jinn in a load of Star Wars video games, by the way. Oh, that's right. And then Claire Clifford, who plays Professor Kyle, is another... I think she might be, if not the first, she's one of the first to come from the BBC medical drama Angels, where she played a rather frumpy young nurse for four seasons. So it's kind of canny casting that people would recognise her as being this rather humorless, frumpy nurse, and now she's playing this rather serious, frumpy paleontologist. Um, she pop, pops up in an episode of Torchwood in Series 2, Fragments. Is she really? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the final bit of casting, June Bland, who plays Berger, the parents who are watching might recognise her from a really long-running drama serial called The Newcomers. For JMT, she was a friend who'd helped him arrange a few charity dues while he was working on All Creatures Great and Small. Um, because her husband was the producer of All Creatures Great and Small, Bill Sellers, oh. who'd previously directed The Celestial Toymaker in the ah. 1960s. It's almost like, and I've been saying this a lot this month, it's almost like it's coming full sir. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Yeah. No, sure. <laughs> that was my TED talk. Thank you for coming. <laughs> oh, so shall we go to Goodreads? Let's. All right. Let's do We're that. not going to top that. So. Yeah, I think so. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.69. The reviews for our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies does not give it a rating this time. 
And he says the book feels like a script page, though there are several changes. Most of them are simply scenes reordered to suit prose rather than television. On screen, there were lots of cuts between scenes, which would have been difficult to follow on the page without visual signposts. The scene of the doctor reading the book Black Orchid from the previous story of that name has been removed too, presumably to make the book stand alone. Yeah, the, the book that the fifth doctor's trying to get Adder to read at the beginning is Black Orchid. Despite being written by Ian Martyr, the book isn't as gruesome as the TV version. Not even Martyr could top people being liquefied. We don't actually see the process on screen, but the resultant primordial soup is very graphic. The only slight disappointment is the omission of episode 5. <laughs> it would only have needed an extra page or two. Jim knows what we're talking about. Episode 5 of Earthshock is an extra on the Earthshock DVD, which features the reveal that Adric survived the crash of the Starliner, uh, Starliner, of the freighter, only to be eaten by a dinosaur, which was witnessed by the cyber leader's head saying, excellent. <laughs> wait, wait, this is a real extra? It is a real okay. extra. It is a real extra, and it's in claymation. It's adorable. It's adorable. <laughs> The only thing missing is Matthew Waterhouse not doing the voice of Adric in it. Yes. Daniel Kukwa gives it three stars and says Ian Martyr is a fantastic adapter of Doctor Who stories, but I think he and original writer Eric Sayward are at cross-purposes here. The original Urshock is as close to James Cameron-style action-adventure as the series ever managed, and managed it damn well. And yeah, that's Peter Grimwade's direction. It's amazing. But Ian Martyr tries to change it into a novelization that's far more creepy and subtle, which goes against the loud, blunt, adrenaline-pumping grain of what the original story was trying to achieve. The result is a strange hybrid that, while well-written, isn't the satisfying adaptation it should be. And finally, someone named Jamie gives it five stars and says, Not my favorite Fifth Doctor story, mainly because of the heavy Adric element in it. However, as it is his last story, and in fact he dies at the end of the story, I can forgive it. God. Okay. Sick burn, Adric. I know. Your death was not enough. I guess not. So, Dalton, out of five <laughs> stars, what would you give this book? I'd give this uh, 3.5. I think Ian Martyr does a really good job creating atmosphere, giving us gruesome details about all the death that is surrounding it. I think it was a kind of fitting, sad end for Adric that, again, humanizes him and makes me feel a bond with him that I haven't felt before, which was kind of shocking for me. Ha, ha, ha. So 3.5. <laughs> okay. And Allison? Is this the last Ian Martyr we're reading? I believe so. Let me think about that for a second. Are you, are you not doing the connected? Oh, God, that's right. We're doing one more, but it's not okay. a novelization of a Doctor Who story. It's instead a standalone with Harry Sullivan. Okay. I should know if this would be our last time uh, fingering his novels thoughtfully. <laughs> Okay, so the Ian Martyr we've read before that I that stands out the most in my mind is Ark in Space, and I could not tell you anything about the plot to Ark in Space other than there is in fact an Ark that they find in space. (laughs) Well, but I remember 
many different moments from the story in terms of character moments and these sort of visceral sensory moments. So what I have written down for the plot in this book is blah, 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 bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> and a lot of it's sort of the equivalent of Marvin the Martian on Looney Tunes saying, I'm going to blow it up. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot that I'll remember about the, sort of the different reveals, these sensory moments, the pools of goo, the spells, and then the character moments with the Doctor and Adric as well. So to me, the weakest part was the actual plot and story or something like, oh yeah, the Cybermen are taking out the dinosaurs, but that's fine. All these moments add up to something that if I'm overly fond of saying, six to the ribs mm. later on. So that's not the last one of his that I'm reading. Some of his more annoying ticks are on display here as well. But overall, it was it was something that hit at sort of the right moment when I was talking about the weather being kind of melancholy today. And for sort of early spring, where we had sort of a here, where we are a hot flash, and now it's back to cold and rainy and might actually snow a little tonight. It was sort of the perfect thing at the the perfect time, which is interesting since it was published uh, almost exactly 40 years ago. Timely. So I'm going to go with 3.5, which is wildly high for me, mm-hmm. but it was just sort of the right thing at the right time. I will say that in the book, The Doctor and Companions are asked, are you a comedy troupe? And I would think the I think he missed the obvious comeback of certainly not, we're circus folk. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a couple of doctors back. But yeah, 3.5. All right. And Jim? You think 3.5 has gone high? Okay, hold my coat. Um, oh, I'm, I'm really stingy. <laughs> super stingy. That's okay. Because you don't have the, the heritage of this and the, the, the back knowledge and all that. The Cybermen are in a lot of Doctor Who stories and a lot of the stories aren't as good as we would like them to be, or they're better and the Cybermen are only slightly in it. And I think, I don't think it's a big swing to say this is the best of the lot. Yeah. And I think Marta really improves upon what is already a great story. Uh, he makes the Cybermen sickly and sensory. He fixes a few of Sayward's more clumsy dialogue and some of his plotting. And I'm looking at this scoring system you've got, and if you, you can't achieve a five, what's the point of having a five? So I'm going to give it a rather crumbled five-pointed star for excellence. Damn. <laughs> that um, was high. <laughs> and it's just because I'm looking at it from a positive point of view. If you, if you approach every single book and within the first chapter it's, it's not terrible, then you can have the optimism of this might be the perfect book ever. And then you start shaving it away until you get to where you end up, whether that's going to be the brilliance of the Crusaders or Fort of Doomsday, whatever your spectrum looks like. Um, I think that this surpasses expectations. I think anyone coming at this who thinks that Earthshock is their favourite TV story would not be disappointed or felt let down. So that's why I'm giving it a five. How did such a generous soul end up here with us? No idea. No idea. (laughs) Especially since (laughs) I'm about to give it my score. And it's not quite as high, but I definitely agree that this is a very, very good adaptation of Earthshock, which is the best Cyberman story ever, period. It absolutely is that, which is probably why I was slightly disappointed with Martyr's take on it. I was hoping for more improvements, and he certainly does improve Sayward's plot because there are some gaping plot holes that Martyr manages to patch up as well as he can. But there are bits of dialogue that are missing that I wish were still there. Braveheart Tegan is gone. 
the doctor's first saying of that phrase is not here in any form. And that's very much a Peter Davisonism since he came up with it. And it's sad to me that it's not there. So it's this weird mix of I see the improvements, I like the improvements, I also see the changes that were meant to be improvements that aren't, which puts me in the weird position of giving this a tentative four. <laughs> I was originally going to say 3.75, but that strikes me as not quite high enough. And five strikes me as, forgive me, Jim, maybe just a bit too high. So in this case, I'd, 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 I'm comfortable giving it a four. If I've tempted you up for a little bit of a point, my work here is done. Okay, well, there you, you have go. effectively shamed us all. Well, <laughs> I will admit, you have a point about the scoring system because I think it's my background as a teacher. I'm not willing to give a perfect five more often. But yeah, there you go. Well, our, our version of Dance Over the Stars is Strictly Come Dancing. And one of the judges refuses to give a 10 until the last show. And in some seasons, he's never given a 10. He gets booed a lot by the audience, I'm just saying. Well, I get booed a lot by my audience, so I understand that. You and get booed by the, the regular panel. Yeah, I get booed by everybody. It's Boo. a harsh crowd. Boo, I say. Yes, I know. It's amazing I ever had a daughter. So, thank you all. <laughs> Someone didn't boo me, obviously. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we finish Peter Davison's first season as we read Peter Grimwade's novel of his own script for Time Flight. Good grief, already? Yep, speaking of disappointments. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC and subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice if all else fails you, and it inevitably will. Email me directly at Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you, Jim Sangster, for joining us yet again. Thank you. Thank you for tolerating my, my madness. <laughs> well, we've got plenty of madness to go around, so I think it works. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Podcast Network.